Greetings, friends. Welcome back to the Film Alchemist podcast, the show where we look at movies we love, break them apart to find out what makes them magic. All right, guys, this is a sub, sub curation for the month of October. Um, As I am a massive horror movie lover, I kicked Dandino's wussy ass off the show. No, just kidding. (laughs) Uh, But no, Dandino's a busy guy. I am not as busy. So I am trying to gather up friends and uh, extra allies for this fight against darkness. The theme this month that we're doing is our uh, sub-curation to body horror, which you'll be getting as normal. Uh, I'm talking to buddies of mine about movies that scared them when they were young, right? So I picked a couple of my own you'll be hearing, uh, which are Warlock and Serpent and the Rainbow. (laughs) Terrified me. Rewatching them, I learned a lot about my youth. But today I am joined by longtime friend, uh, first time on the film Alchemist, my buddy Jonathan Holiday. Welcome hey. to the show, dude. Hey, what's up? Happy Pittsburgh's to be here. Finest. <laughs> I try to be. Yeah. So me and John actually met ages ago in L.A. when you had just gotten to L.A. Film School. Yeah. So was... we've worked on films. We talked a lot about films, and you have a banger tonight. Yeah, we were uh, we were mutual friends out there, but um. <laughs> Yeah, tonight, uh, the film that scared me the most when I was a kid was Clive Barker's Nightbreed. So. You know what is awesome? I, I have not seen this movie in ages. We all went through that phase, and like, I think mine was late high school, early college, where you see Hellraiser, and you're like, oh man, all other horror movies are wussy compared to this. Ooh. And you go through this, this kind of fucking sleazy underbelly of horror, which is all Clive Barker movies. It's true. It's very true. From Jesus Wept, now we're, uh, we're in Midian. So. Oh my god, dude. Yeah, this one is no exception. This one is very interesting to me, though. Uh, I didn't realize how much this is just kind of uh, Beauty and the Beast for goth kids. It kind of <laughs> it kind of is, now that you say it, yeah. Um, like, halfway through my notes, I was just like, Holy fucking shit, they just remade Beauty and the Beast. It's very much like a uh, a call to arms for, I think, anybody who feels a little bit different. Uh, I see that as a, now as I'm older, but as a younger kid, it was, uh, man, that button-eyed mask scared the fuck out of me. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so what? can you hone it back? What was the first thing about this movie? And I guess a movie like this, it could be a lot of fucking things. What were the things that... How young are we talking, and what was it that really... Uh, leapt out and scarred you for life. Yeah, so I think for me, it had to have been like between seven and nine. So in that that age <laughs> See, where this is, this is the most part, because <laughs> you find out whose parents were letting them watch it. Yeah, they were way uh, too young to watch. and I'm gonna say that maybe this was on TV, but more likely we got it from the video store down the street. And um, it was one of those things where, like, we would always Friday nights, me and my friends uh, Vikram and Sharifa would uh, have these little scary movie sleepovers and we basically got to pick whatever we want so we would just go by like whatever the cover art was and for some reason it shows this (laughs) and uh yeah it's the same way i used to pick out albums in high school that's why i became an iron maiden fan you're just like (laughs) how can you not yeah the more metal it is (laughs) you're like no one will think i'm a sissy if they find this cd in my bag (laughs) yeah and then you you know i was actually what's the band guar Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Where I was looking at that with um with our friends. I used to I used to call Gar uh Guar Jim Henson's Rammstein. <laughs> it really is, yeah. Because uh, like when I was younger, I used to think, oh man, that's some real like hardcore shit, Guar. And then I looked at it and I was like, God, man, these guys are. This is kind of sad in a way. These guys. Yeah. Right. Um, like these costumes are not that like crazy to look at as an adult. It is very much like Dark yeah. Crystal and. Well, you're just like, it's like a sadder version of Kiss. You're like, look at how much they have to go through because they never got classically trained. <laughs> yeah, and I'm just like, my God, I feel bad for these guys in these suits on stage just sweating their ass off. And um, yeah. the smell inside of those suits must be something. Oh, but, um, I mean, they, they would fit in with the characters from this movie. But that is the fun thing, man. You hit on something that I loved as a kid was when we would go to the video store, the horror movie aisle, that was at least 50% of the joy of being a horror movie fan was just the covers, right? Like what was the most fucked up cover? And like, I have to see this, right? That's how I picked out so many movies back then. And night, like all of Clyde Barker's movies always had those kind of covers. You're just like, 
this feels very wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like I could get in big trouble for renting this. So you always wanted to, of course. For sure. And, um, yeah, for us, it was always just whatever looked like it would um, keep us up the, the most that weekend. So, <laughs> yeah, like Hellraiser was definitely like an easy go-to because I just remember the uh, pinhead thing. And I was just yeah. like, oh, my God. What no, it's primordial magic. The moment you see Pinhead, you're like, yeah, I got to be a part of that. So, but like uh, cer- certain images and monsters, they just transcend, right? It's just a very primal nature. As soon as you see Pinhead, you're like, yes. And now I would say Nightbreed doesn't exactly have that, right? So jumping into Nightbreed, right? Sure. This is, this kind of starts off as almost a crime thriller. So we have a guy who, you know, he's very fond of the uh, the James Dean look. He is. Kind of going about he his is. way. With the... Which I forgot, dude. We start with a, a Tim Burton medley as the opening. Yeah. So I, I had gonna... forgotten that Danny Elfman did this movie. Yeah, that's one of my notes, too, where I'm just like, this feels like it could be Beetlejuice. It feels like it could be it's one, so crazy. Of, one of Tim Burton's films. Yeah, well, there are so many scenes. And, like, the opening is kind of this, like, they cut from uh, these nightmare creatures, right? The the nightbreed, as we find out later. Right. So it's like the the, you know, the quill lady... Uh, the guy who kind of looks like he's Tim Curry from Legends, like methed out cousin. Sure, sure. They have they have all these weird characters. Like, there's no shortage of awesome characters in makeup. But as they're kind of frolicking through uh, the cemetery, right, and they do that really fast push up to the gate, I was like, this. All I could think of was this reminds me of Batman Returns. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, man. Um, that whole opening sequence, I was always like, as a kid, I'm just like, oh, cool, monsters running. Like, that's neat. I'm in. You got me hooked. Cool creature effects. That's all we really want. I mean, we used to think the leprechaun was like a, a solid flick. So, uh, like... <laughs> whoa, I still do. <laughs> I actually so... think leprechaun is probably the most underappreciated horror series because it started off trying something, right? For sure. And then a couple movies in, they kind of were like, there's no reason to fight it, and they just went all in with the joke and never looked back. Yeah, we used to we used to watch uh, Leprechaun in the Hood a lot. And, oh my um, god, Lep in the Hood! Yeah, <laughs> and he did fucking... his little rap and he shit in his hand, and it was right from his shillelagh and whatever. <laughs> so you know, uh, so many good ones. Uh, yeah, what I actually like about this opening cemetery scene, though, is it kind of sets you apart from a lot of Clive Barker stuff right away. Is because it's almost this attempt to. Uh, make you yearn to party with these monsters, right? Well, they are visually disgusting. They have all the hallmarks of Clive Barker monsters. They, It's kind of this, you know, frolicking in a fantasy wood, right? It's like an old Disney cartoon. You expect Snow White to be singing. Yeah, they're You're having, like, I kind of want to party time. with these dudes. For sure. <laughs> and I think that kind of, it's cool because it sets it up, you know, with what we're supposed to take away is the point of view where the monsters aren't the bad guys. And, um... Yeah, and then for me, soon after that, um, after Boone, I think the scene that scared the shit out of me as a kid came super early in this film, and it was oh yeah when the when the chubby couple got killed by Decker, and um, and I think it scared me because it felt it felt kind of like that couple felt real in some sort of way. Like yeah. as a kid, like uh, I wasn't used to seeing parents that look like my parents maybe yeah. then being murdered so it's a really scary moment in the movie where because everything else is kind of like there are these monsters and then there's kind of this the creepy like art couple that lives in a studio that we've all seen in movies but you would never actually hang out with those people but then they take you to exactly a life that most people like i was a midwestern kid you're a midwestern kid that was our life, right? That was us or our aunts and uncles or whatever. Sure, toys on the floor and the house is a mess. And... <laughs> the, the part that got me, dude, was when she was rummaging through the freezer and it's all like microwavable nuggets and uh, you, shit. You mean the cheese, onion, and tomato flan yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the corner? But I, but I was just like, oh my God, we used to buy that disgusting shit. And then immediately we cut to this man in a suit. But he also has this this mask. And I'm not sure what the mask... I don't know if they're insinuating that it's like a skin mask or what. But it has yeah. this kind of gross, gnarly texture to it. And then the button eyes are what always did it for me. The yeah. zipper mouth is creepy. But the button eyes are so fucking gnarly on that mask. The button eyes are definitely the hook. The mouth really freaked me out. Just because the way it's slightly askew. So when he talks, it looks like his lip is 
just kind of crooked. And um, yeah, the that that costume design was pretty pretty great. Um, well, yeah. Well, mixing that disgusting head with the suit, right, is already kind of an interesting dynamic. The thing he did in that scene too, which you find out later, this is David Cronenberg, right? Like <laughs> one of our David great horror movie directors. We're doing some Cronenberg flicks this month. We're and it's it's so crazy that this guy just came out from behind the camera and delivers this fucking very creepy performance. It's a but it's a solid performance too. Like it's, it's chilly. Great. But so. what he does that I think is cool is he plays it so detached from humanity, right? He's let, not this mad slasher. And even in that scene, and for Clyde Barker, it's kind of a toned down scene for him violence-wise. But what it does is, like, you know, he gets the, the fat mom or whatever, and it's just like a couple slashes. It's so matter-of-fact. The dad, it's one cut. And we don't really, like, zoom in on the, you know, we don't rob zombie the blood wound and all this. Right, right. Like, it's, it's just this matter-of-fact. It's very mechanical. But then when he goes upstairs for the kid, you're like, holy fuck. You're like, this movie is unsafe now. <laughs> yeah, uh, him taking out the kid, I think that's probably what um, would freak me out, too. Because a lot of horror films, like, you don't really see the little kid die, right? Um, no. It's not insinuated that, the, like, the little one gets it. But right off the bat in this film, he's uh, he's done. It's gone. Yeah. Well, I think it's like after they did Frankenstein in the, you know, early or late 30s or whatever... People are like, wait, did he just fucking kill the little flower girl? And they're like, no more of that. Yeah. Like, we pulled way the... F now it's like, it happens all the time, right? For Kids sure. get murdered all the time now. But I remember as a younger kid, you always just kind of assumed it was cool, right? You're like, well, parents and adults, you know, they're mean to me, so fuck them. Yeah, we're like <laughs> But teenagers. when it's one of your compatriots. Right, right. I'm like, I haven't hit puberty yet. I'm probably not going to die. So, at least uh, seven through nine, I should be fine. But um, but not in not in Nightbird's world. Not yeah, from not David in Clive Barker's world, dude. So. We're all just flesh for him to play with. That sick fuck. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, the other thing I like that they do in this movie is, uh, with Cronenberg, especially, I think the idea to make him this fucking creepy psychologist is so fucking brilliant. It really becomes a super fun uh, dynamic to the character, right? Because what he does next is he finds uh, what's his fucking face. Boone. God damn it, the James Dean guy with the mullet. Yeah, yeah Boone. Boone. Yeah, Boone. Right. So <clears throat> he kind of was like, hey, come in. We haven't done therapy in a while. And he just immediately is like, hey, you definitely murdered these 10 families. Yeah. He's like, what? And they're like, no, it was definitely you. Like, I believe it. And what I love is that immediately Boone, without any kind of hypnosis or drugs, just goes, oh, damn it. What are we going to do? <laughs> yeah. So, like, that one small scene, I don't know if you think of it as like a, a gap in the script or not. But it actually plays in this very, holy shit, what did this guy do to Boone over those years of therapy? To make him, yeah, right? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, and Cronenberg, when he's just on that phone call and he's kind of like staring off into to infinity where he's just, you know, like, that would be good. You need to come in, you know, don't let me down, Boone. And, um, yeah, you just see like this guy who's super manipulative and is super detached and um yeah and it's weird because he also in this scene he's asking a lot about this place medellin right and he wants to know about did, the monsters did he see so there's did you say medellin i don't know what the what Mid, did i say midian midian i think medellin <laughs> is in Colombia somewhere with uh yeah. i thought that was the vinnie uh, chase movie is that what i did right. <laughs> down there no, in, the, uh, in the medellin yeah. So. Also, I mean, if he wanted to know about that, that would be equally weird for this movie. <laughs> for sure. For sure. But, uh, but yeah, so there's this subplot to his character that I didn't quite understand, which is, is Cronenberg actively looking for these monsters? So, yeah, this is a question I had, too. And I initially I was like, was that was that heavy set couple in the beginning Nightbreed that are living outside of Midian? And oh, I don't, I don't fuck, think dude, that I never they, even thought of that. I don't think that they are. <laughs> I think it's just uh, he hates breeders. and um, Well, right. We find out later he just despises breeders. And what it almost becomes is from being a therapist, he's just so fucking sickened by all of us. Yeah, we're all but, scum and yeah. Yeah, <laughs> which, I mean, he's not necessarily wrong. You can read the news. He's not wrong. Maybe he's going, but see, this is what I thought. I thought the serial killings and all this and connecting with Boone again 
was his way to make offering to the Nightbreed, and then that just never kind of came up. Well, I think it's there's something going on there with the Nightbreed where um, later on that guy in the shack with the crazy spoons on his shirt <laughs> asks him. Yeah, he's, like, got, he's got all the flair on his head. <laughs> yeah, he's like, did they kick you out because you wanted to be them? And he's like, no. But I think there's part of Cronenberg that really does want to be them. And, uh, you know, it's no, no secret that Clyde Barker is... Um, he is a gay man who I think during this time period uh, was maybe saying something about Cronenberg being in the closet and just wanting to be part of the freaks. But being one of those guys yeah. that hates himself so much for wanting that, that he can only kill the people that are what he wants to be. To, right. So. Well, there's there's this kind of weird thing in the film where it's he almost is constantly jealous and trying to destroy Boone, right? Because this guy comes to him as a broken man. He's trying to help him through therapy, and he kind of gets his shit together. We see he has a normal job and a girlfriend who loves him. Right. And then even through being framed in death, he finds this kind of new community and doesn't lose all of the things Cronenberg thought he took from him. And he doesn't see a lot of the Nightbreed yet between that and the shack, but there is this kind of sense of why does this guy get to fit in? Why does he get to have all of this kind of, these relationships that Cronenberg's unable to have? Yeah. So so maybe on a level he he hates the Nightbreed um by the end of the film just because they're existing in their their true form, right? Cuz Cronenberg's thing is about the mask. Right. That's the that's the whole thing that they really kind of like drill into you over the course of this thing whether it's uh Narcissi with who um he's talking about showing his true face or what is the mask that you wear um yeah, Cronenberg, I think, really just wants to fuck Boone, and that's what this film's about. <laughs> so He wants to be one of Boone's many good relationships. He does. <laughs> uh, Boone, Boone has that big dick energy that uh, Kristen he Shaw does. loves. Um, that's right. Lori, who just, man, she's a dead ringer for Kristen Shaw. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is weird, too, because Cronenberg, at one point, he easily picks up Cheryl Ann. He who is super hot, kind of like bar girl. Like I have spent many a nights with like my friends when we were younger. That's what we thought going to bars were: is you're just going in there to find Cheryl Lands at tables by themselves, and if you can prove your metal, you know what I mean. You'll you'll get a hook up with a fine Cheryl Land. <laughs> yeah. And Cronenberg does it. Cronenberg fucking completes the dream, only to then mutilate her and tie her to a fucking tree. Yeah, and um, I don't know. Are we? I feel like we're kind of led to believe that they totally, uh, they fuck that night after the bar, right? Like Cronenberg and Cheryl Ann. Yeah, Cheryl Ann I don't think would be as impressed with him if there wasn't some kind of action. Although we do learn Cheryl Ann's entire motive is always the dollars. It is. And she's kind of like, he's a fucking perfect mark because he just left his wife and whatever. (laughs) Right, yeah. So, I don't know, maybe they didn't. Maybe he just wooed her with, you know, uh, his wealth. With that suit. But yeah, I mean, I, I think you can assume that she thought that was on the horizon. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. Yeah, so the the whole Cronenberg idea in this movie, right? The, the him not necessarily wanting, because that's what, I, like just, you and I both write scripts, right? And to me, that's like the first thing I would have been thinking is, Cronenberg is mad at Boone for getting to join the culture of monsters when he knows he's the true monster. And the movie doesn't actually play it that way, which is kind of cool, man, because I I think you hit it right at the start, right? Because Boone dreams of these Nightbreed and this and that, and his girlfriend calls him nightmares, and he says, you know what, I'm actually kind of starting to like him. And a lot of what we see in this movie is all about humanizing these disgusting Clive Barker movie creations. And every human being we see, uh, except for Boone and his girlfriend, seem to be tremendously terrible people. Yeah, they're um, <laughs> yeah, they're really shitty, most of them. Um, yeah, and uh, what I always kind of latched onto with it was that um, I feel like Cronenberg had to have known about the Nightbreed before he met Boone, right? Well, through the the therapies, Boone has told him all about the Nightbreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you think that he would just kind of like say whatever? That's the ramblings of a madman. If he didn't already kind of know about 
this stuff. So when Midian popped up as a keyword, you know, it kind of buzzed on his radar or something. But um, right, yeah, I'm curious because I know that there's like a comic book series out uh, with Nightbreed, and then they're turning it into a TV show. <laughs> um, so. yeah, this, okay, I know everything's becoming a TV show now, but to be honest. By the time Nightbreed ended, I don't know if there was, like, a tremendous amount more I needed in that story. Yeah. The, there are a couple questions I had, like, I want to know who owns the farm. And the next day goes and gets their tractor and that last scene is, walks into a barn full of fucking Nightbreed. <laughs> yeah. With Babette and her fucking whatever that was that she turns into. The little kid who when she's in the yeah, sun. Yeah, the little ginger puppy. Yeah. Man. You know it's weird? Because the puppy that she turns into essentially looks like... uh the brindle fly okay from cronenberg's the fly sure. just like pale and then it just turns into this ginger kid oh, okay that's how we're doing it Clifford. uh but yeah man i think to me this i think you kind of nailed it right that, that weirdly enough the character where this is a beauty and the beast story where we are our most interesting lens is gaston right cronenberg is gaston in this sure. movie this kind of closeted gay man who so desperately wants to be what he's showing everyone he is, but he knows he's not. Right. And so it's kind of fun to see the bad guy is this main dude. Meanwhile, we're doing this other, uh, the other, the A story, which to me is less interesting. It's more of the B story. Is Boone attempting to join the Nightbreed? Now, how you join the Nightbreed and what the powers and abilities of the Nightbreed are. <laughs> It's, are a little bit amorphous. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. It's uh, you. You can either have fucking tentacles that come out of your stomach and latch onto people's eyes, or you could turn into oh, smoke. I fucking, and, I love uh, the final battle scene. It's one of those where like it stops being interesting at all in like a deeper narrative level. Yeah, but it's just pure fucking like horrific image porn. <laughs> it's uh, it's insane. Yeah, the final battle was. Uh, it's a lot of fun though, especially as a kid. Where you're not really, you know, you're not latching on to these higher themes and, and motifs. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, cool. I get to see all these monsters do crazy ass shit. And this guy is just flamethrowering the entire graveyard. And it's great. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah. fun. It's, it's one of those fun movies where there's no kind of bar to belief, right? They, they never... <laughs> You know, they say in movies, right, you get one give, right, where you have to ask your audience to suspend their disbelief one time. Right. And if they do that, the rest of the movie should work. Nightbreed never stops doing that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's true. Every character in the movie just immediately assumes that this crazy person who may be a mass murderer, or at least who's framed to be a mass murderer, and this psychiatrist that no one knows who the fuck he is. He can just tell any cop, he has hey, there's an <laughs> army of evil people in the graveyard, and they're like, we should definitely we should go, go check, check that, that out. out. <laughs> we need to go check well, that out. <laughs> there's that great scene when Boone's in prison, right? He's been captured now. They send a doctor in to check him out. And he just goes, guy's got no pulse. And immediately sends the entire police department into this frenzy of, he obviously is the walking dead. What's yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> no, one, no one has any kind of like. Let's let's reason this out. There has to be a he's, good reason. Yeah, it's just he's, immediately he's, to get the guns. And the sheriff's just like, he's not lying down dead. He's walking around in my fucking cell dead. And it's just like, <laughs> there's not like, oh man, this guy is a medical anomaly whose heart, you know, is stopped, but he's still walking. It's just like, he's a fucking monster and we got to fucking kill him and his friends. No, so. it's great because even the doctor, right? So the corpse gets off the table when Boone is killed. There's that great scene where uh, Cronenberg kind of admits he set him up, right? He comes out of the graveyard after having seen some Nightbreed and been bitten. And Crona and he's like, don't you believe me? And Cronenberg's like, of course I believe you. He's got a gun! He's got a gun! And they fucking shoot him like he's a non-white American. It's, they just fucking lay waste to him. Yeah, man. He gets lit up. And the whole time, like, the commanding officer is just like, hold your, hold your damn fire. And, yeah. and they do not. He gets <laughs> no, they're just like, shredded. look at this super cool guy with his <laughs> hipster life. And they take revenge, right? They get him to the hospital, pronounce him dead, are starting an autopsy. Gets up. Corpse jumps out of the window, presumably. You know, it seems like they're yeah. high enough up. And uh, immediately the detective's like, he must not have been dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we got to go trace this. There, there's just this playing into the game that the characters have unabashedly that I, I secretly love about this movie. Because I think movies like Nightbreed, there are a lot of movies like this that try to 
right in a lot of the fixes, right? And Cronenberg has a little bit of this. Like when Cronenberg's examining the gas station attendant and he does the, well, how do you know so much about the night breed, right? Like he literally, his line of dialogue is exactly the question that had popped in my head five seconds earlier. Right. So they do it a couple times, but but they don't they don't let it hold them back. Like some horror movies, you they have to have the whole spiel, right? Like the big the big uh, expositions to explain this world. They're just kind of like, ah, fuck it. It's this fantasy world of like weird dead people for sure. And uh, of all the things in the film, it's definitely uh, one of the things that does not bother me. So uh, he's just like, because I wanted to be one, and that's a good enough answer. It's uh, yeah, right. And yeah, it is a good enough answer. Like this guy lives alone; his place is covered in fucking flare, it, and his pet is a stuffed coyote. <laughs> it's a TGI Fridays, um, essentially. Yeah. So. Exactly right. So you're just like, sure, that makes total sense. This guy would want to live in a graveyard. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, jumping jumping back to that whole thing too. I never realized in the beginning that uh, Decker gave Boone LSD uh, either as a kid. I. I yeah that's right yeah and um which is another one of those weird things you're like what was cronenberg's end game of this well it was a it was a whole weird sequence too where uh when he's when he's tripping and he's going to see Lori at that club and it's that quintessential like 80s performance piece that goes on way too long it's not just like oh she's singing cool let's advance the story it's like now we're gonna let her sing this entire song She's going to sing yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, it's not even like a hit single that's like built-in marketing. It's just, <laughs> right, no. we got to kill three to five minutes to make our 90 minutes. <laughs> it's it's true. And then uh, it's just like the song that she's singing feels like something that's like Cindy Lauper. But uh, they're all wearing like cowboy hats. And these uh, everybody has these these baseball hats with the bullhorns on them. Do you notice that throughout yeah. the whole film from the rodeo or something like that? The the whole thing is very strange. Yeah, and I was just like, where where does this place exist? Where what state is Midian in? <laughs> I know um, that's what like, I thought too, because I was like, this feels almost Canadian. I could buy that. Way. Yeah, I could buy that. Uh, yeah, so I I don't know if they say it in the film. I'm sure they did at some point, but yeah, but the zebra rugs and the pink walls and the like, the ferns and the whole thing yeah. is uh, yeah. No, it it's fucking weird because. The human world we see is always very strange. Like when they show us Cronenberg's like evil doctor lair. Yeah. And it's got like the weird like water with bubbles that are colored and it's it's just fucking weird, right? Yeah. I, it's And it's like that. You're like, I don't know where any of these characters are supposed to exist. These sets kind of become these these bigger visual cues and onto the kind yeah. of person we're supposed to assume they are. <laughs> they do. And then he has his big table of knives, which is just um yeah. Yeah. But uh not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah, so in this whole thing I, I kinda just feel bad for Boone because he's just like this victim of circumstance, it seems like, all through the beginning. You know, um I you know, I I'm a little I might disagree with you slightly, because Boone kinda seems like a dipshit a lot. Okay. I mean, the fact that he doesn't even protest his innocence at all. And also, there's another thing Boone does in the entire movie that just, to me, makes him highly unlikable. There's the scene when his girlfriend comes to the garage to see him, and he does the, uh, 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 uh. He's, like, trying to say a sentence while they're, like, kissing every other syllable. Oh, yeah, man. They were about to. And I, I immediately it was like, I've known guys like that, and I have so little respect for them as humans. <laughs> So that and that might be a little bit of a low blow, right? But that mixed with the someone's going to accuse me of slaughtering ten families, and somehow I have enough gaps in my memory in my everyday life that I'm like perfectly feasible. <laughs> that by the time Boone is kind of falling from grace, I do not feel bad for him at all. Yeah, I feel like he just is. Um, he's just trying to figure out what it is that happened to him. Cause this has been going on for like months with Decker. Right. And this LSD trip is kind of like the final culmination of it all. So, yeah, but th this is what I mean though. Boone is kind of a weird, cause if you look at it from like the beauty and the beast analogy, right? He's the beast kind of trapped in this, this life and he's getting these visions. He doesn't understand this doctor's controlling his head. Um, even when he goes to Median, he doesn't, fully buy in right like he kind of does the yeah of course i'll join because why not instead of being a dead guy it's like the best deal ever yeah 
he just gets bitten and he gets to be an immortal whatever nightbreed. But then even then he's like, I'm gonna run out because he just kind of wakes up dead and signs a contract again. So his whole movie is is the castle. He's just trapped in this life constantly. But it, in a weird way, it feels like for as much as this guy's kind of like a dipshit, everything works out pretty killer for him. <laughs> I mean, by the end, yeah. And did you you watch the director's cut, right? Yeah, I watch, that's what they have yeah. on uh, Tubi TVs where I found it. Yeah, yeah same with the me. director's cut. Okay. So, yeah, by the end, things are looking not too bad for him. Uh, but that's what I mean. He's kind of like Paul from Dune, but without any personal loss or struggle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah man. Like, I, I don't fully understand, like, what is his arc by the end of the movie. And I know it's a bit of a nitpick for a movie like Nightbreed. <laughs> because I, 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 this is the other weird thing, too, right? Because you wonder about this entire character because – the audience is meant to buy in on the Clive Barkerness, and you get some tits. You get like classic '80s horror movie stuff, right? Right. Who, who did they create Boone for? Right? Is, are we as the audience supposed to look at him and be like, "Ah, our avatar on screen"? Boone was, or we're all just like, "Look at this fucking dipshit," I, right? Like, I, who is Boone appeasing? <laughs> and his his non journey. Who is he speaking to? I think Boone's <laughs> created for Clive Barker. I think he is Clive Barker's. Uh, sexual desire. I think that's what Boone is. He's sex in a pair of Levi's. So like... <laughs> he's Springsteen and James Dean crushed into one form. <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. And um... so wait, so you think that Boone is the flip side to Cronenberg, and that that hole is giving you the Clyde Barker experience? I think so. Yeah, I think Boone is someone who, without overtly calling him gay, I think he's someone who's, who's on the cusp, who's having these dreams, right, all the time, these fantasies. And I think what it is is encapsulating someone who's basically yearning to be different, yearning to exist in this world where they're accepted, and uh, fantasizing about it, you know, and then eventually being made whole. And I think when I'm gonna butcher these names, man, but the weird guy who looks like Jay Moore with the red makeup and the tentacle hair, like the dreadlocks. Um, I think... <laughs> that's such a good description. I think when he bites Boone, uh, I feel like that's almost just like Boone's first experience, you know, going to a glory hole or something, you know? That was his moon, his uh, moonlight beach scene. <laughs> right. I think, well, I think it's like his, you know, his handy in the back of an adult bookstore, or like that first step that somebody takes when they're they're going out And you know what happens? He fucking runs out and gets gunned down by the white man. Right. I think he... The fucking white straights are there to take him down. <laughs> well, I think it, the whole thing Dude, could just be a metaphor. True. It's a metaphor you know for someone funny? coming out of the closet. Well, there's even the scene later where there's just a priest in prison, and we yeah. never find out why. Oh, they said because he's that, a drunk. That, Oh, is that it? Because yeah. yeah, later the Alpha Butch uh, sheriff's like, "We're gonna bring him with us, so God's on our side." Yeah. And when he questions God, he's like, "You can't do this. There are women and children down there." He's like, "Shut up, fag." Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> and then what you're it like, is. "Wait," because I remember thinking to myself, "Like, wait, was he in jail for being gay?" <laughs> it's it's totally you know? this. And then oh wait, but get this. Remember, because at the end he sees the statue right of the baptizer, wants to touch it. Gets a fucking facial that then uncovers his true form. Yeah. He's now Nightbreed. He is Nightbreed, yeah. Wow. Yeah, the clergy, the most closeted With, of all uh, the fucking humans. Yeah, who looks like, um, like Hillis have eyes, kind of like the weird, yeah. dumpy, radio radioactive head. That just... Yeah, it's not fair that that's what he looks like. And, Boone... and then Boone just gets to be like... Oh, let me breathe in, and I'll I'll look fucking super yeah, hot again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Boone just has some like little swirly makeup on, and he otherwise. That's what I mean. Fine. I can relate to every character in this movie more than Boone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, and there are a lot of people who get the man. They get a raw deal when it comes to being a nightbreed. Like, what were they before? It is true. And then, well, you know what is the weirdest one, right? So there's all these obviously like grotesque creatures and this and that. The guy that actually terrified me the most, and I'm like, I got to know that guy's story, is the dude who looks like he's on his way to, like, Hawaiian Day at work and just has a little French bulldog. <laughs> oh, yeah. Where he has... You're like, there's nothing weird about... I'm like, is this a normal guy who just, like, found a place and he's like, it's like... I'll just hang? Or does he have nightbreed powers? Like, what the... It's... That guy's the scariest. It you is. know what it's I mean? It's Moby with a, with a Boston Terrier, like... <laughs> 
running around. He has this, um, yeah, that lay that he has. And I didn't realize it until I watched through a second time recently. But, like, I used to think that was just, like, flowers or some weird shit. Those are, like, bird heads. He cut off bird heads and made a oh necklace Oh, my of them. God. And now I, he's even more creepy. I thought that was just flowers, too. Yeah, no, it's... But uh, that's the thing. He's the only heads. one who has seemingly... Like, even Boone kind of transforms into, like, weird face guy, right? It's like Star Trek rules. At minimum, you have to have something on your forehead, like Star Trek right, makeup right. rules. But I was like, what is Hawaiian guy's deal, and what's that fucking dog's deal? Yeah. Because when the girlfriend walked in and found the little puppy that ended up being a ginger, I thought that'd be his French bulldog. Well, that would have been a great thing. I always, like, initially when I was seeing Babette for the first time, and she was changing mm-hmm. back into a kid, and I forgot, and I was like, that has to be the kid from, like, the beginning, right? Um... And I was like, no, that kid's dead. But I thought that would have been a great little turn, right? <laughs> like if he killed right. if down in the city, Cronenberg faces right? like his own his own monsters. But no, it's um, yeah, yeah that guy was weird, and uh, the Narcissi, uh, I, I guess I'm saying that right. I don't apologize if I'm not. But um, that guy, man, he is he steals the show in every fucking scene that he's in, though, because he sees that guy with the Boston Terrier, and he's like. Mm, I, those are some nice tattoos you got there. And the guy, like, yeah. smiles and then gets really embarrassed and kind of runs away. And, right. And uh, it's, it's super awkward the whole well, time. This is funny because that is Doug Bradley, who is Penhead. Is it really? Yeah, but now he's playing this fucking weird out there. <laughs> he's he's essentially a Rob Zombie character. He is. But in this Clyde Barker movie. Because at the end, he's even running around in, like, the hills or the devil's reject outfit, right? Like raiding the police station he with does. all these fucking funny one liners. His cowboy and he's hat. He's got on. the fucking thumb blades. He does have the thumb blades, which I always <laughs> thought were like I thought that was terrifying as a kid. And that was another scene that I think got me as a kid was um when he doesn't rip his own face off. He rips off everything but his face. Yeah, he like scalps himself and then right, he's ripping right. the fucking fle- That character is fucking funny. Cuz him and Boone are becoming nightbreed at around the same time. Right. But right. he immediately shows up and flourishes, right? He's like, he, Oh, finally I found my I found my people. He's loving Whereas every... Boone's kind of fighting it. He's like in the deep end immediately, like he's the old mentor character. <laughs> he uh yeah, he he really drops in there and hits the ground running. And even like being so bold as to light that match off the wall when Boone is getting like baptized and he's just like lighting up a cigarette and he's like Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Like, no, because he's just like, even the Nightbreed know I am a fucking, I am the extreme here. Like, and, I am not to be fucked with. Yeah, they don't even look at him like they're going to, like, do something. They just look annoyed. <laughs> they just look like, like, this motherfucker again. Like, yeah. Well, this this reminds me of that Groucho Marx quote, right? Like, I don't want to be a part of any club that would have me. Sure, yeah. And I think there's a bit of that with the Nightbreed. Right? Pro- probably whenever a body shows up to them, they're just like, God damn it, another guy who had a snake for a pet? Like, come yeah, on! Like, yeah, every, where's just, like, the cool guy? <laughs> everybody is just weird as shit. Like, they have their own little things that they do, like, feeding the blood to the eels. Do you remember that? When the guy Yeah, like, okay, so this scene we have to discuss, because this is when the girlfriend decides... Because the Nightbreed, while being very protective, have no qualms just letting anyone walk in and out of their underground world. Right. So, yeah, so it plays as Alice in Wonderland, right, where she descends down. And this is the first time we see um, Medi in the underground city, right? Right. I got to say, for this kind of movie, that fucking set blew my mind. It was great. Um, it's fucking unbelievable set work like indiana jones or goonies meets clive barker and it it was really good well it almost reminded me too of like the underground city of zion right in the matrix like it's just this fucking cool world but they put in all these little details that make it seem like kind of this lively market or bizarre well obviously it's a bizarre bizarre it is but you know what i mean and she's just walking around in every corner there's just this other fucking amazing fucking creature of some sort. This is where I told you the one that haunts me the most is the huge fat uh, lady where her neck comes down kind of between her boobs, her to the side of her huge stomach, and like where her navel would be, that's where her head is. With like a green like do rag on. I was like, ah! It's just such a. And this is what Clive Barker does the most, right? Is I've always kind of thought of Clive Barker as like the people you used to. I don't know if you're old enough for this, but when I was a kid, it was like. You would get HBO weekends every now and again. And, like, all of us would want to stay up to try to see real sex. Oh, for sure. Real sex. Because we're like, oh, this is going to be like porn. But I remember being it's, young it's enough to not... be like, 
wait, there, this is sex that does not look fun or is titillating. It's oh, always like no, the man. saddest people do, you know, like, oh, yeah, we dress each other up like horses and shove carrots in our ass. Yeah, and it's like. And you're like, they're all kind of out of weight and pale and like, oh, okay. And so I've like, always thought of Clyde Barker as a real sex person, like a real sex character, and then he just has no fucking respect for the human form, right? Everything to him is just flesh to be penetrated or pulled it's, apart. There's this kind of just fucking very visceral nature to the we're just meat, right? Like the Nightbreed even call us humans meat. And to me, that might be the most Clyde Barker sentiment of the whole movie. Yeah, yeah, where he's like, you're a natural, you're just meat. So. Yeah, it, it's so fucking, it's just, it's a strange relationship Clyde Barker had. Because that's the weird thing, too. For someone who's obviously like a fucking nymphomaniac, se- borderline sexual deviant, he seems to have no love or respect for the human form. Or does he <laughs> have... I, I think he just... Anything that moves it might be something Clyde Barker wants to fuck. I There's think, nothing in that Medellin underground that he would not I, I believe that. For sure. <laughs> 100% true. Yeah, that is correct. Well, I mean, I think that's that's the thing, right? And And... To get back to that, that's what Cronenberg's character says, right? Is that everything, these sicknesses and whatever, these desires, they're all just thoughts in your brain. And it depends on how long it takes them to manifest in the flesh. Sure. And I think that's a very, again, that's kind of a Clyde Barker. That's the Hellraiser. To some were angels, to some were demons, right? To some pleasure, to some pain. And this movie plays that kind of Clyde Barker message that he always is trying to get to us. But trying to do it from this fairy tale romance perspective, which, uh, if for nothing else, I love that Nightbreed tries to normalize the real sexness of Clyde Parker. <laughs> yeah, it's um, and there's all these moments in there too where you know, as a kid, I I did not pick up on that sort of stuff. Uh, no, you're just seeing the guy young. feeding his blood to the eels, like you're saying. You're like, right. oh, but then and then he has eels come out of his fucking fat stomach it does yeah oh. uh, but like every female monster that i think i saw on screen has her has her boobs out all like at least at one point there are breasts well, right uh, well there's the the woman who can turn into gaseous form right right and she she's naked seduces the cop kisses him and then he's like vaping as he's passed out <laughs> yeah right? well my thing i was we like see, uh the quill lady Right. And the Quill Lady might be the most like this one haunts me now as an adult after rewatching this. But she's like shooting quills and like ah, ah. She yeah. has this kind of when Harry <laughs> met Sally reaction to fucking shooting quills uh, everywhere. True. It's like Jesus Christ. But then there's there's a throwaway shot, and I don't know if you know what character this is. Uh, the one when but, uh, I, they die, and then she takes the blood. Yeah, and rubs her uh, nipples. Rubs her nipples with, with it. Like, with the, yeah, she lubricates her nipples with the blood. Just, it's a quick and I was thing. Like, God damn it, Clyde! It's such a quick thing. Yeah, she runs in. There's she's... no possible way that Clyde Barker has not tweaked his nipples with bloody fingers. I, it's uh, impossible. <laughs> that was actually a Clyde Barker cameo. So, yeah, it's so fucking. It's just, it's it's a strange thing that him as a gay man is constantly. Using this titillation, I think there's a thing too when Clyde Barker was coming out that obviously a lot of men who would be his audience they they are a little butch, you know, and back then it was a little frowned upon and uncomfortable. So he he weaponizes the female form, which you know doesn't do it for him against us to bring us in and make us fucking sit and contemplate these very gay agenda films. Yeah, and I think he does a good job. Um, I mean, I watched them all, <laughs> and I love gay people now. So yeah, Clyde Barker, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Everybody, everybody in that. There's a lot of just sexual tension between all these characters, and I think for me, the the moment that is uh, Decker's arc is when he finally gets penetrated by Boone, which happens on the yeah. bridge, and I think that's all he wanted the whole movie was just to get penetrated by Boone. <laughs> he wanted to get. Well, Boone also does the thing where he hits him with a mirror that reflects his mask. Yeah. I was like, that is very on-the-nose filmmaking, but I like it. But then before he stabs him, what does he do? Rips the fucking mask off, right? Is that, you know, you think you're this guy. You think you're this mask. You're actually just this fucking square psychiatrist. And then fucking shanks him. Yeah. It's, um, right? 
that final sequence is he shanks the closeted form. <laughs> That's kind of a weird decision. Yeah, I think um, what he's basically. I think if Decker was just a little bit cooler, he probably would have been taken in as a nightbreed. Um, he's the perfect nightbreed. He's, he's, he's fucking a fucking monster. Breed. But that's the weird thing, right? They make it early on that you have to prove that you're a monster, which you think means you have to be this evil murderer and whatever. Right. But by the end of the movie, the people they accept, you know, him, his girlfriend, uh, Doug Bradley's character is pretty fucked up, but we don't know that he hurt anyone else. Right. I think the people that are accepted as Nightbreed, that they say you have to prove you're one of them, right, is not in monstrous act, but that you'll buy in right to these laws and this way of living right you'll be part of a community which is kind of a fun inversion by the end of the movie yeah for sure if you're if i think uh, uh narcissi said it when he's just like no one else will take us in and that's why we ended up here that's why you found yourself coming back to this place is because nowhere else will take you and i right. think that's what the uh the parameters of getting into midian is is that you have to prove that you have nowhere else that you can go. And then, yeah. come on in. But, yeah, just be cool, man. Be cool. <laughs> yeah. Be cool, but also, like, it's totally fine if you're not cool. Because, like, Narcissi, right. like, there's that moment where Boone goes running after Decker. And then he crawls on top of Lori, who's passed out. And there's yep. this real, like, like, he, was he going to rape her? We don't know for sure. I get the vibe that like, he was going to mutilate her with the thumb with blades. The thumb it blades, was not yeah. cool. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, I just wanted to keep her warm. the Han Solo to Boone's Luke Skywalker. Yeah, it was. Imagine that if when Luke first leaves the fucking Falcon, he hears, ah, he comes back and Han is just having his way with Obi-Wan. It's, that would not be cool. And he's just, I'm just trying to keep him warm. Just trying to keep him warm. <laughs> I'm the Tauntaun to his, to his Luke. Yeah. To be fair, I would watch that director's cut as well. <laughs> uh, Nar- I, I feel like Narcissi's character would 100% thumbblade himself open for Luke Skywalker to crawl into. So Yeah. He- <sighs> what a fucking creep that guy is. But that's the weird thing, right? Is even a guy like him becomes one of our, uh, our anchors to decency in this fucking sure. movie, right? Because you got the evil fucking, I'm the rich white guy therapist who's actually murdering all these people. The breeders are kind of shown, right? The the family that gets murdered at the start is kind of this, oh, look at this fucking uh, Midwestern squalor, right? This fucking sad life that they lead. Right. <laughs> right? They're almost killed as cattle. Then we get the alpha male cop. We get the fucking cops call in a redneck mob. And they are just gunning it, right? It's like this Fury Road shot on the way to the cemetery. Yeah. Uh, it's just bad. Like, everyone is bad that we meet that is not a night breed. And then that cop who was going over, like, the armory with all the guns, and he's like... Oh, my God. <laughs> and then he's like, you can't go wrong with a good garrote. And then he's, like, rubbing it on his lip, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. A garret, whatever. Yeah, definite police issue, for sure. But, that guy's also been on real sex, for sure. For sure. Uh, for sure. Uh, Narcissus just mainly reminded me of someone that my dad would bring home from an AA meeting. Um, like... <laughs> Like that exact look when I was a kid, like the king of rock shirt and that that kind of greasy hair and um, yeah. So that's what scared you. You're like, I live with nightbreed. Yeah, I live with nightbreed is all around me. Oh, dude, it's fucking crazy. Because even as the monsters fight back, you root for them to defeat the humans for sure. Even when they unleash the berserkers. You're like, yeah, classic movie monsters. They're still killing people who we know are way worse. For sure. Right? Like, the scene right before the Berserkers start killing everyone, they're about to murder these kind of women and children they've cornered. Right. And then the Berserkers, who are just pure monstrosity, murder them, and you're like, they're even better yet. They're still better. But, uh, yeah, that whole sequence, and then the final fight, too, where Boone is like, you gotta fight back. Like, uh... That's another thing that I think kind of speaks to the idea of people kind of coming out and letting their their differences be something that's a strength where he's just like, you got to fight. You can't hide. And I think yeah, that's something that we were sure. probably seeing uh, in the 80s. I mean, I'm, I can't speak to it. I was... I was just born in '89, so but uh, right. I feel like I feel like gay rights was something that was being kind of uh, having a surge with Clive Barker there, oh, yeah. you know. And- well, between that and then 
you kind of saw this explosion through culture, right? And then the whole AIDS issue. Right. It was just something that was on a lot of people's minds. And especially with AIDS, it became a lot of others. And being afraid to even be in physical contact. For sure. In the same room with these people that are some kind of sexual. We had created these like sexual. Well, not we. Again, I was young in the 80s, but I was still born in the 80s, right? But I remember there was this kid who caught AIDS in my home state of Indiana when I was little, right? This kid named Ryan White. And it became this big thing because they wouldn't let him go to school. Yeah. And so even though he got it through intravenous whatever, um, everyone just assumed he was some kind of fucking horrible deviant. That he had brought this on himself. This was some kind of godly karmic punishment. And there's this weird kind of conversations that we as kids had with adults. and what I mean, it's just a weird time, you know? But there is this whole concept of you don't even want others in your vicinity right that their otherness and i mean we see it now with other groups right like that's something that people in power and this and that they always create others for us to be afraid of and fight against and they're almost always kind of small groups of people often put upon people sure right it's just kicking people while they're down and i think that's kind of the fun part about this movie is so clyde barker takes the american normal man right is the big fucking cigar chomp and sheriff Right. And just turns him into a dickhead. And then we see these fucking creatures that on the outside should scare us. But you see that they have these family bonds, right? The woman who turns into gas is really a mother figure to this this little ginger puppy. Right. Uh, the, the weird Hawaiian guy does have that dog. I don't know what happens to the dog by the end, but, you know. We'd like to think that it made it. Yeah, but there there is this this level of caring amongst the night breed, which is... Unusual, like even the guy with the tentacle guts is giving his friend like the black devil um, pep talks, right? Like, come yeah. on, come on, come on. And and you don't see that amongst the other human characters. There is the weird thing where uh, they did show the sun death. And it's not just that the Hawaiian guy got melted, but then his body explodes like an ash bomb. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> I was like, hey, man, the ash thing can be pretty cinematic. Like, oh, crumbled to ash. The explosion added a lot to me, though. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> it, yeah, it fucking exploded on a grand scale. But, yeah, there's something to be said, too, with the idea of, like, uh, AIDS being something that was, you know, at the forefront of our culture then, too. Because there's something with the blood of Baphomet, or Baphomet, whatever they're calling it in yeah. this film, where if you're touched by the blood of Baphomet, then you become Nightbreed. And we see that with the uh, Preacher at the end, too. And yeah, the priest facial, yeah. I wonder if there's something that maybe is being said there, maybe reading too much into it. But um, You know, okay, so the Baptizer, Baphomet, whatever uh, the name was, right? The statue, I remember that was one of the images that stuck with me most from my first viewing. It's kind of got this alien queen vibe, but godly. It's fucking cool, right? It's yep. got this Medusa-looking head. He can't move. It's, it's a weird... What do you make of that... Is that just kind of like a cool Clyde Barker deity, or is there something more, right? Because they talk about this, too, that Boone is one of the only Nightbreed that's been able to hear the voice and walk away, right? He has right. something that might save them, and then that leads him to be this crusader. Yeah. So I, I don't know exactly what the movie wants us to take, but it, it feels like it's this, this, this crucible, right, for each person. And because Boone is the most true to himself, right? He doesn't follow the old laws or this and that. He's just kind of following his heart. That he is becomes the de facto leader of the Nightbrood, right? Now he is Cabal. Right. And just even that, the fact that she says from now, like, you destroyed the Nightbreed. You have to help save us now and rebuild what you destroyed. This is your fucking fault. Right. And then the statue crumbles into oblivion, right? So there is this concept, too, that they play with that statue, which is... This kind of self-reflective nature, right? The fact that Boone buries his past and becomes... He fully embraces what he is now. I think that is a really cool visual way to keep hammering home this this hidden self message the movie has. Yeah, and I think it's Clive Barker saying that, you know, at that point in time especially, I think he, he was trying to get across the point of you don't need to hide those things that other people say make you a freak. Uh and Boone represented this sort of revolutionary who was going out there and saying, like, we we need to fight. We deserve to exist outside of Midian. And, uh, yeah, I think Baphomet kind of represents this crumbling of a culture that hides. And um, yeah. he may have destroyed that shelter that kept them all safe. 
but now it allows them a chance to go out into the world and live live free. So Yeah, man. And that's that's kind of the fucked up thing about this movie. Like on one hand it is just kind of this schlocky, sleazy, typical Clive Barker kind of movie. But to me this movie's not really a horror movie, right? The Cronenberg character is horrific. And there's kind of a toxic masculinity angle that it's constantly playing. For sure. But for the most part, the Nightbreed, to me, they are just the, you know, the house utensils and furniture from Beauty and the Beast. And Boone is the Beast, and Belle's kind of the reverse, where she's trying to pull the Beast out. And that's a telling scene, too, is even in the end when he's like, you know what, I can't go with you because I'm Nightbreed now. Right? Like, he forsakes the girl. His whole thing was about the girl. He forsakes her, right? Maybe that's the transformation he was waiting for all along. She kills herself, and she's resurrected, too. Right. Um, so there, there's this kind of romantic fairy tale that is actually the, the skeletal outline of this movie. So it, it's while it looks from the outside like a classic Clive Barker sleazy horror film, there's kind of this touching... Uh, romance with self that is going on the whole time that makes it different and unique. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, you're right. It's not really a traditional horror film. And and Lori is, man, she's ride or die throughout this whole thing. Yeah, um, sure. Even at the end. Your boyfriend killed 10 families. I just, I just want to talk to him. I just want to talk to him, yeah. I just want to see him. And then she has that moment where she, like, did she, like, smell his shirt or some shit, and then she sees his ghost by the window? Like, this sort of... Oh, my God, yeah, like, billowing in the curtains. Right, yeah. Very Walmart romance novel. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, by the end, it's uh, it's really just a story about, you know, um, trying to find love, I guess, right? And she's... Yeah, man, whether it's love of yourself or love of a community or, you know, just a place where you can be open enough to love, it's very hopeful in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of stuff that really just went over my head as a, as a kid. Because for me, it was just a creature creature horror movie that was yeah uh, so much stuff crammed in there. Um, but see, this is what happened, right? As a little boy, you were afraid and you didn't know why. Now you learn it's because your heart was closed to true love. Is that is that right? <laughs> That's how it goes. It wasn't all the fucking blood nipples and the, the murders and the the weird, creepy zipper face, button eye mask. It was the love that scared you. It, maybe. It could have been. But speaking of <laughs> blood nipples, uh, when they tear out our friend with the Boston Terrier uh, on the initial raid, and one of the things they do is they're forcing him in the sun. They rip out his nipple rings. They just tear yeah, him out. Fuck? Like, that's that's their go-to. They He looks like a normal guy, right? Who just happens to That's be his only weird. mark of a nightbreed. <laughs> is the nipple rings, yeah. Weird sex piercings. Um, <laughs> I still think that guy might be the scariest part of the movie because I still can't wrap my head around what there the fuck is he's something doing weird there. about what his motivations are, and he he always has this sort of mischievous look in his eyes. But um, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there were just a lot of small details in there that I thought were thought were interesting. Um, and, and scary but yeah for me i felt like every time a night breed in that final fight um i felt like they could have been a mortal combat character the way they dispatch people yeah uh whether right. it's like the fatality of breathing the smoke into the guy and then he's just like burning from the inside or right shooting quills into somebody's face and then at one point uh the priest is about to be killed by the sheriff and Boone just fucking Luke Kang kicks from the side that flying <laughs> jump kick like from a solid distance away just goes flying and uh, kicks the shit out of the sheriff. But um, oh man, so many of those. There's a rocket launcher. The guys try to hit the berserkers with the rocket launcher. It goes right through mitts. the middle of the berserkers. <laughs> like any movie that has a rocket launcher, I've I would like to do the actual math on this. But I can't think of a ton of movies that have a rocket launcher shot that misfires that I don't like. Yeah, and then the guy with the <laughs> flamethrower who, like, seemingly, I don't think any Nightbreed actually touch him. I think he just gets kind of startled as he's burning down these, like, cattails yeah. and lights himself on fire. And I think, well, I love the fact that, like, yeah, there's a flamethrower tank that's made for throwing flames. He gets a little bit by some burning grass. He goes, ah, yeah. and he falls down and explodes. 
that's what I mean. This movie has all the visual fun. It has all the kind of horror elements. The fucking, like, Clyde Barker movies always just have that amazing makeup and creature work. For sure. So it has all that, and it's easy to see why this would be scary to a kid, right? But then I think what's cool is as you watch it older, there's this this subplot that, that makes it a little bit more than meets the eye. Yeah, and I was reading that Morgan Creek, Morgan's Creek, the company that did it, uh, gave him a lot of pressure about um, whether or not uh, the way that he was going with the story was something that they could sell. And I know that he did a lot of like rewrites and reshoots. So uh, Well, that's probably where the, the 90s karate action came for in for sure and then um <laughs> we gotta butch this thing up <laughs> yeah I, I read the one of the producers said to him like you have to be careful clive or people are gonna end up liking the monsters and i think that uh i think there was a disconnect with the people producing the film and clive barker because i really feel like this this could be a story that's really really dope and where those messages can come through a lot a lot more and i think he might have just gotten you know dealt a bum hand in the people that he was working with so yeah, I mean, to be 100% honest, that's exactly how I read the film, right? To me, it is a movie where you your heart goes with the monsters. Yeah, for sure. And that, like most good horror movies, right? Like, great zombie movies aren't often about the zombies. It's about the humans when, when we take away the kind of protection and safety net of society, how monstrous we can become, yeah. right? Instead of everyone just bonding together and working for the good, we become these selfish, horrible little fucks. And this movie kind of plays on that same level where... It's, it's helping us show our own monstrous forms. So when we look at someone like, you know, Tentacle Guts, we're not looking at him as like, oh, what an obvious monster, right? Right. You're, you're taught to look past that and sympathize. And yeah, man, to me, that Clyde Barker still succeeded, right? Even though it feels like some of the ending was a little extra action-y movie, uh, it, it still works perfectly for me. Yeah, I I left watching this two times this week with the feeling like this this was a this was a good film. Um, it had its moments where you know I think it was just a victim of um, you know a production company that maybe didn't understand it. Uh, but, <laughs> but I yeah. feel like that could be the case for a lot of people that work with Clyde Barker. So I won't get too too judgy, but <laughs> true. But um. Yeah, I, I thought it was a fun flick. Uh, it's something that I think anybody who loves, you know, special effects, makeup, um, yeah, creature design, it's it's great. Yeah, and there's so many different kinds of creature effects in there, too. From the, oh, the yeah, stop motion sure. stuff on her journey down. and mm -hmm. I love the stop motion stuff. That weird flying manta ray with teeth that's like a 3D yep. hologram. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It's fun stuff. So. It's just... Yeah, any movie that can have so much kind of genre fun and still give you just enough subtext where your mind can wander after the flick about greater meanings and different ways to look at it, I mean, that that's harder than it appears, right? A lot of movies like this don't take that time to give you any subtext that lets you keep having fun with the movie once you, you know, the real ends. Right. And so to me, that's a credit to this. And I think this is the fun thing, too, going back and watching movies that scared the shit out of you as a kid. Because now you watch it and you're like, yeah, it's not really that scary. But you can totally understand a young boy in 1990 why this would scare the shit out of For you. For sure, man. It, you know? Uh, uh, yeah. It's, to me, it's just, it's a fucking killer flick, man. It's really, really... Because that's the other thing, too, is not only does it just highlight so much of what Clyde Barker's at, but it does it in probably the most humanizing way that he's ever done it. Yeah, and what what film of this was his? Was this his second film, or did he do something between Hellraiser and this? I'm trying to think, he would have done From Beyond a little after that, I believe. Uh, yeah, I mean, this would have been early. This would have been right. early, early uh, flick. I don't have my phone handy. I was gonna IMDb that shit. Yeah, I kind of, yeah. I kind of feel like this might be, you know, something that. It was just a sophomore uh, effort that didn't really get the full backing of them. I think of people yeah. knowing, like, this is Clive Barker making this. Uh, whereas right. they just saw Hellraiser and they're like, cool, crazy, crazy fucking film, but not, you know. Yeah. Well, Hellraiser lacks heart for the most part, right? And everyone kind of knew him as the, 
the more fucking grotesque Stephen King novelist. Right. Right. So he was still cutting his teeth on a new new medium. And I think he did a lot, man. I think he really achieved a lot. Um, yeah, this was. So that's it, guys. Yeah. Oh, no. Wh- which film was no, it? No, I was just going to say this was his second film that he directed. So. This is a great second film, it's man. It's a pretty solid second film. That's a kick-ass second film. I give him mad pride, and especially this is a new medium. You know, he was a novelist. He's a writer. Yeah. Who just happens to have these insane fucking dreams, and he can get that on page and on screen. That's really cool. Uh, Yeah, guys, so that's it, man. That's Night Breed. This is the first of the movies that scared the hell out of you as a kid. Uh, I'm going to do some of these. Dandino picked out The Omen. My buddy Sam is going to help me cover some. Uh, we've heard on the show before, guys. This is a fun thing we're going to do. And whatever room we have to give you extra episodes this month, this is what we're looking to do. Uh, so thanks so much for joining us, John. Killer pick. Thanks for having me on. All right, man. So that's it, Alchemist. Share the Nightbreed with your friends. Share the pod with them, right? Watch Nightbreed with them. See what they take from it. You might learn a lot about them underneath their mask. <laughs> we, we destroy uh, <laughs> what we envy. That's right. So yeah, share it with them, gauge their reaction, and if they're not terrible serial killers, share the pod with them. Uh, Take a second, rate and review if you can. Share on your social media, guys. That helps us spread the word. Um, But more than anything, just thanks for taking part, guys. Uh, We appreciate you listening. From the Film Alchemist, I'm Josh Griffey. I'm Jonathan Holliday. Jonathan Holliday! We popped his cherry. (laughs) That's ours now. (laughs) My nipples are bloody, thanks to you. (laughs) as are ours. Peace, bitches!